The last of the Stalin-era states was, of course, the People's Republic of China. Backed by Lenin and later Stalin, the Red Army of China arose during the warlord period and tried on several occasions to work with the Republicans, hoping to get political representation in the new republic. The republic technically started in 1912, when the Empress Dowager signed the abdication order for her four-year-old son, creating a republic. The presidency was given to Yuan Shikai, who three years later seized power and declared himself Emperor of China. The warlord period began, and Sun Yat-sen, who is considered the father of the Chinese Republic, worked with the anti-monarchist wing and some other warlords trying to pull together a cohesive Chinese Republic. He even wrote the Second International in Paris for help in building a new socialist state and helping with leadership and resources. Sun ended up signing an agreement with the Soviet Union for help to build the communist army in China, and they were formally aligned as of 1923, the year before Lenin's death. Sun would go on to die himself two years later. Chiang Kai-shek was a brutal general and leader who headed the Nationalist Party, who is blamed for the deaths of around 8 million Chinese in his time, first working with the Communist Army, and then, when they gained power, began crushing and killing thousands of them in the Chinese Civil War, starting in 1927. The Soviets, wanting another puppet satellite, basically tried to run the Red Army for the most of the war, and things went terribly wrong. At a certain point, the Red Army had to flee before the Nationalist Army. It was at that point that they sacked the Soviet leaders, much to Stalin's anger, removing them as leaders, and Mao and Zhou Enlai became the leaders with Mao as his assistant. Once they pulled out and began the great three-day-long march in 1935 to evacuate the now Nationalist territory... Mao was so essential to the Long March that once they settled in Shanxi, Mao became leader while Zhou Enlai and Deng Xiaoping became vice presidents. Deng was then replaced with Zheng Gulao once his army arrived. Thanks to the Long March, they were isolated enough to rebuild and regroup without the interference of the Soviets. Unlike the Nationalists, Mao forbade his army from stealing from locals and always paying a fair price for their goods, which helped with recruiting into their army and political support. In 1937, Japan invaded, and the Communist and Nationalist armies teamed up to fight Japan for the duration of World War II. Of course, the fighting pretty much immediately resumed once World War II ended, and the Chinese Liberation Party ended up victorious and declared the People's Republic of China in 1949, with Shang and the other Nationalists fleeing to Taiwan. They then the next year ceased Tibet, but the invasion didn't have the support of the people so much. Unfortunately, they're also creating cultural genocide in the process. Mao gained a lot of support with the execution of up to 2 million rich rent-seeking landlords that had drained the people for centuries. From 1950 to 1956, most of the changes were positive, including staving off famine through ensuring food was properly distributed. However, there was grumbling at Mao's Stalin-style top-down approach, saying that the government should be more hands-off and let the people be more self-sufficient, just like under Lenin. Mao then launched a campaign in 1957 called the Hundred Flowers Campaign that asked everyone to freely share their grievances. He was not happy with the USSR reversing many Stalinistic policies and disturbed at the way Khrushchev was now running things along with the uprisings taking place in East Germany, Poland, and Hungary. He was horrified that the Soviet Union was attempting more peaceful coexistence with the dirty capitalists instead of the Stalinist view that communism should spread further and capitalists were the enemy. It also didn't help that the Soviet Union kind of tricked them into going into the Korean War, implying they would back them, but didn't actually say they would back them, and didn't, hurting China economically. 
For six months, academics and party members at all levels let their opinions be known and complaints that they had. After six months, seeing Khrushchev denounce Stalin, it made him fearful of being toppled as well and began the brutal anti-rightist purge. Some say that it was the plan all along, others aren't so sure. It may have been genuine. Either way, between one to two million, mostly intellectuals, were sent to worker or re-education camps who had actively criticized the government. This lasted from 1957 to 1961. The independent judiciary was ended, and the courts were now run by the party. From this point on, Mao was at odds with the USSR and created his own brand of Maoism. This crushed all dissent, and any thought of criticism produced terror. This created the perfect storm for the Great Leap Forward. His first five-year plan had gone fairly well. There had been input where it was mostly needed, but with flaws. With a Hundred Flowers campaign ending, in not improvement, but crushed dissent, no one dared speak out against the new five-year plan. What happened next was a comedy of errors, or more a tragedy, that would have been hilarious in fiction, but this was real. Mao wanted to become industrialized quickly like Russia was working on. However, with a lot of their intellectuals in camps, no one was there to point out any issues they may see in his plan. His plan involved collectivization similar to Stalin with the same agricultural pseudoscience and got about the same results of lowered productivity. Then on top of that, he commanded, along with agriculture, for every commune to also smelt steel. Not realizing that steel was a complex process, and if you don't do it right, you just kind of end up with ruined iron. So communes began pumping out some really, really crappy steel to help build cities. This also created a system where they now couldn't move to new areas and get jobs and have any benefits in those areas, meaning they were second-class citizens as peasants. The citizenship system is still in place today, which is why families never move for work. The parents just do and send money back because their kids wouldn't be able to go to school or get health care. So now they have less people to work the farms and the negative impacts of top-down collectivization and pseudoscience and a win about as well as you would expect with the added tragedy that no one would dare tell the upper leadership that people were now starving due to the plan. They feared reprisals so much that when Mao went on tour of the country, they would bring out all their stores, dress up in their finest, and act like they were eating well and happy. Mao then left, super proud of his brilliant ideas, completely clueless as to what was going on. One, Marshal Peng Duhai, finally spoke out, and Mao called him and his supporters bourgeois, even though Peng had grown up in a peasant family. He and his supporters were sent to a camp, and the Great Leap Forward continued for two more years. Dozens of dams collapsed from crappy steel, killing up to 200 140,000 people. It is estimated that 30 to 55 million people starved to death, ridiculously more than the Holodomor, under Stalin. 22 million tons of grain was being held in public granaries and more being exported since leaders didn't dare speak up that food was completely uneaten. Finally, after enough uprisings and deaths, the party realized the error and Mao was stripped of his leadership role and other leaders, including Deng Xiaoping, came in and cleaned up his mess. Many people called anti-rightists were released and their image rehabilitated, including Marshal Peng, who was viewed as a hero for standing up and telling the truth in China. Mao took a lot of shame for his actions and was looked down on and ignored as the other leaders were picking up the pieces. He had been a totalitarian god in his nation and now was a disgraced failure. People no longer paid attention to him, but since power corrupts and falling down from that height of absolute power is the biggest ego destroyer of all, he did the incredibly petty thing of creating a new grassroots populist movement called the Cultural Revolution in 1966. 
that called for permanent revolution, abusing Trotsky's words, and created persecution squads of mostly young people carrying Mao's little red book and basically persecuting, looting, imprisoning, shaming, or murdering anyone who wasn't pro-Mao. They would seize power from the local governments and destroy all of the Chinese culture and artifacts, destroying the four olds of China, old ideas, old culture, old habits, and old customs. This caused the largest self-cultural genocide the world has ever seen as buildings and artifacts were all destroyed and vandalized, putting the Taliban to shame. Mao's army was directionless and was pretty much the classical use of the term anarchy just with the government's blessing. Probably the closest thing to the purge you can get. If you dared be an intellectual or a pragmatist, you were shamed, sent to a work camp, or killed. Deng Xiaoping was sent back to a worker camp once this happened, only barely escaping murder because he had been so loyal to Mao before. Of course, since these were a bunch of teens doing most of the work, there was a lot of infighting and splintering, which often required the People's Liberation Army to be sent in to reduce infighting violence to a minimum. Massacres happened all across the nation. The Red August of Beijing's multiple massacres, the Guangxi Massacre, the Inner Mongolia Massacre, the Guangdong Massacre, the Hunan Massacres, and the Yunnan Massacres. Colleges were all shut down, intellectuals and professors killed. There is a reason why if you go to China, other than specific areas, it feels like a young new nation. All of its past was self-destroyed. Most of Chinese traditional culture only exists now in Taiwan, one of the many reasons why China is so eager to retake Taiwan. Lin Biao was one of the masterminds of the Cultural Revolution, and for it, he got listed in the Constitution as Mao's successor until he was accused of trying to stage a coup against Mao in 1971, which was around the time that the Cultural Revolution finally ended, and Lin fled in 1972 and died in a plane crash. After that, the Gang of Four rose to power as Mao got older and weaker and less able to control the masses. This consisted of the fourth wife, Jiang Qing, Chun Xiao, and Yao Wenyuan, a person who had created a nothing burger out of a play during the Great Leap Forward, claiming a play was a slight against Mao, which made Mao feel good about him, along with Wen Hongwen, a rather brutal member of the military who did much of the dirty work to keep them in power. As Mao's health declined, they controlled all access to him, making them the de facto leaders. A month after Mao died in 1976, all four were arrested in a very carefully controlled coup that could have gone horribly wrong had they caught on. There was a celebration in the streets over their capture. Over Mao's rule, roughly 45 to 75 million people died of starvation or murder. That is a quarter to half the population in the U.S. during that time. Once again, like with Stalin, showing not what communism can do, but showing what one person with way too much power can do. Mao even purposely let his old friend Zhou Enlai die of a completely treatable disease by denying him any treatment. Newly named premier Hua Guofeng replaced them, but Deng Xiaoping came back from the workers' camp and attended and organized the condemnation of the Cultural Revolution, similar to Khrushchev's condemnation of Stalin. Deng then became the next leader of the nation, but they reorganized the leadership to no longer ever be consisted of just one person. What they had was essentially an executive branch of nine people with a spokesperson of the group with certain special extra powers. This heavily stabilized the nation, and Deng opened up the markets with the West, creating economic exclusion zones, allowing certain city areas to be capitalistic while the rest remained communist. He started a Boulogne-Fanjang campaign, which meant eliminating chaos and returning to normalcy. 
This, of course, didn't mean he was warm and fuzzy and allowed for a return to Leninist ideals. He was fine crushing too much free expression, such as with the Tiananmen Square massacre, and then made it illegal to talk about it. The nation of China is still pretty top-down and corrupt, especially on the local levels, which is a nice scapegoat for the CCP upper classes, as if you ask people, they mostly support the national politicians and blame the local corrupt politicians. Corruption has plagued the nation for decades, but in spite of that, is still getting richer with the most billionaires of any nation on the planet. Leftovers of Mao are still being seen and echoed throughout China, and Xi Jinping is now resurrecting some of Maoism, consolidating his power, trying to resurrect Mao's power level, and cracking down on businesses and people's freedoms. Running a small business is getting harder and harder in China, while large corporations get a slap on the wrist unless it's politically advantageous. With Trump unilaterally shutting down trade with them with no negotiations, they realized that there was no reason to keep their agreement about Hong Kong with one nation, two systems policy, and Hong Kong now has democracy in name only. China's aging population and low female birth rate is going to have serious consequences, and they're experiencing rising income inequality, perhaps set to be on par with the U.S. in the next decade, even though they still call themselves a communist nation. People are told to read Marx, and they do, and try and unionize and are crushed. The only thing making them less scary to the rest of the world is their military spends more time reading and studying Marxist ideology than actually getting any practical experience in simulating combat and war games, mostly to prevent a military coup. While their rise may seem like a foregone conclusion, they may just be another Japan, but even more so. The boomer generation in the U.S. and the European equivalent experienced some of the worst pollution the world has ever seen, and we got Trump and Brexit years later as the older generation began experiencing cognitive decline faster than ever, triggering early dementia-like symptoms. China, especially Beijing, experienced pollution levels our instruments weren't even designed to measure, which makes me fearful about the future of China and some other large and powerful developing nations. Add the fact that people are essentially citizens not of China, but the region, and are unable to move freely around the nation without being second-class citizens, something's going to break in China at some point, and it's not going to be pretty, but she appears to be hanging on to power right now. We are still feeling Mao's and by proxy Stalin's impact on China to this day. And now, on to Cambodia. One of the things that differentiated Maoism from Marxist-Leninism was that it focused on making a communist nation that was agrarian-peasant-focused instead of industrial-proletariat-focused. This idea spread into Cambodia to a man who used the pseudonym Pol Pot, short for politique potential. He took this peasant focus to a radical extreme, to a utopian idea of agrarian purity, even though if you want purity when it comes to humanity, you'll go back to some form of hunter-gatherer system. He believed that everything went wrong after people left agrarianism and hated cities or anything non-agrarian. His father was pretty rich and owned a large amount of farmland. This golden age syndrome pretty much made him an eco-fascist by the modern definitions. He was educated in France and spent his time as a teacher in Cambodia. The Ho Chi Minh Trail cut through neutral Cambodia and Laos during the Vietnam War, and Kissinger recommended Nixon to bomb that trail of a neutral area to cut off the supply line, creating a secret war against two neutral non-communist powers most Americans were completely oblivious to. This destabilized both Laos and Cambodia, bringing them into the war. Laos basically went with Ho Chi Minhism and was protected by the Vietnamese army, while Cambodia went with Maoism with Pol Pot as a leader. This destabilization caused a general to hold a coup, but the king cut a deal with the formerly in-hiding Khmer Rouge to let him stay king if they got to rule. Had this just been Maoism, it would have been bad, but not terrible. 
but Pol Pot had his twisted eco-fascist fantasies and essentially destroyed all cities, leaving them ghost towns by forcibly taking all educated and non-agrarian workers and forcing them to live communally on farms. Family units were broken up and kids and parents were isolated from each other. Pol Pot's ideal was not that everyone should be equal, like in every other form of communism, but that everyone should be and are the same. They all were required to have the same experiences, level of knowledge, and ideas and thoughts. Knowledge was viewed as bad, and all individuality was evil. You were either a soldier or a farmer, and child soldiers were some of the most loyal. Since all humans were the same, the idea of meritocracy was just stupid to him, so loyalty became the most important trait in society. Because knowledge was so hated, even people just wearing glasses were sent to prison and torture camps. You could literally be sent to a torture camp for nearly anything, and only around 1-2% to made it out alive. One of the most notorious torture facilities was the S-21 prison. It was a former high school, and run mostly by teens who were horribly effective at torture and getting any name out of people, then hunting down these people and getting more names, even though most of them literally had no disloyalty. Behind S-21 was a mass grave called the Killing Fields, where a stupa rests with 5,000 skulls in clear glass on display above the Killing Fields, of which these skulls are just a fraction. In 1979, Vietnam invaded Cambodia and pushed the Khmer Rouge back into the jungles and took over, ending the insane madness. However, the Khmer Rouge continued guerrilla warfare by both China and, get this, the U.S. under Reagan. Yes, that's right. The U.S. loves to claim communism led to Pol Pot, but we helped both bring him into power, and then after massacring 1.5 million of his fellow citizens, we helped back him just because he hated Vietnam so much. Yes, we were the baddies in the Vietnam War on every level, but especially once Kissinger sided with Nixon and stopped Johnson's peace process by committing treason by secretly contacting the South Vietnamese and offering them the best deals if Nixon won the election. He then expanded the bombing on all three nations and kept the war going, killing millions more citizens of all four nations involved just to help Nixon get re-elected, and it was only after Watergate that Congress discovered all the stuff it was not told about, some of which was spread to the citizens and are now all declassified on their 50-year mark. Kissinger is believed to have around 3 million deaths on his head purely for political gain. And then the darlings of the right wing, Reagan and Bush Sr. helped continue the fighting. Almost like conservative and neoliberalism is to blame for many of the things blamed on socialism. 12 years later, they had a peace agreement, and in 1997, a Khmer Rouge splinter cell captured Pol Pot and arrested him until he died of old age. The 1991 peace agreement led the Khmer Rouge to having essentially complete amnesty and literally almost none of the members ever face any consequences for their crimes, leading to modern social tensions. Maoism is still not a great ideology, even in some of the other Asiatic nations where there are Maoist political parties and are much more violent than the other socialist ideologies of the area. Stalin led to Maoism, which led to Pol Pot, a lovely blend of Stalinism and eco-fascism not seen before and brought into power and then supported by the U.S. This is a strain of socialism that will hopefully die in time, but China is still alive and kicking and doing really well in the short term, so it may take another century for it to finally go away. To be honest, it's really hard to discover the truth about socialism, communism, and anarchism. Both the capitalists and the communists use propaganda, each biased in favor of their side and very uncharitable to the other side, often not representing them or their arguments as the other side sees it. Pretty much always a straw man. 
If I have said anything that you can debunk, please let me know, and if it's dramatic enough, I will upload a new video to cover it. So as always, thank you all for watching this as a video or listening to this as a podcast, which I'm sure was completely uncontroversial to anyone, especially to the YouTube monetization team. So if you found this useful, please donate to my Patreon. Just a reminder that I'm Anubis2814 on YouTube, and I have almost 700 videos on my channel that I've made over the past 11 years on religion, science, psychology, and politics. Please go check them out, and if your site has the option, like, rate, review, and comment. A special thanks goes out to Kendall Copperberg, Ogrel, Elias Garcia Guevara, and Joe Taylor for their $10 or more Wapawet level donations. I'm always humbled by the fact that they find my work worth funding and worth driving me forward. Thank you all. Please consider donating to my work if you can, and thank you all for listening.